0: So good morning and welcome to Skillman this morning. We're delighted that you are here, thankful for your presence among us. I do want to announce one thing this morning just for those that um, have been long-term Skillman members, long-time Skillman members. We found out this morning that David Howard, who is one of our former members, passed away over this weekend. David had, um, they found an advanced form of liver cancer It went very, very quickly, and he passed away over the weekend. So for those of you that know David, Judy, and their family, we want to be sure that uh, we are uh, intentional about serving them during this time. David was an elder at Preston Crest for the last several years. And so as arrangements come to us, we will, of course, pass them along. But our sympathy is extended to that family. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series that we have been calling reInvent. What does it mean for us to be the church in the modern age? We in our history have talked about our desire to restore New Testament Christianity. What does that really mean? And how do we actually see that playing out as we go about the business And the busyness of life. So this morning we're going to talk about the idea of being reinvented to serve and how we engage the world by being a good neighbor. I will tell you, we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke chapter 10 this morning. So if you would like to go there, I encourage you to go on and turn there in your Bibles or use your electronic devices to go on and get there. So I want to start this discussion this morning by talking about an old farmer who was on one of those Texas farm-to-market roads, or at least he was pulling out of his farm onto one of those Texas farm-to-market roads, kind of hilly. He's pulling out in his rig. A mule is pulling his wagon. He's got his dog with him, and he's up there doing his business. He pulls out, and then, as happens sometimes on those roads... Here comes this car just blazing down the hill. It doesn't see the rig in time, can't stop in enough time, hits it full force, and you just see things scatter everywhere. The farmer's underneath the wagon, the mule's off somewhere else, the dog that's with them, he's off somewhere else. Things are not good in this situation. This guy's had a DWI. And so he doesn't stick around. He just jets on and moves on down the road. Well, the next car on the hill happens to be the sheriff. And the farmer, as he sees the blue and the red lights going around, he thinks, oh, this is good. The sheriff gets out and he starts really kind of looking and surveying the damage. He comes across the farmer's mule first. Farmer's mule is not in good shape. In fact, he's been mortally wounded. So the sheriff takes out his revolver, shoots the mule, and puts him out of his misery. The next thing the sheriff comes upon is the farmer's dog. The farmer's dog is in worse shape than the mule. And so the sheriff just shakes his head, and he takes his revolver out, and he shoots the dog. He comes to where the farmer is trapped under the wagon. And he says, how do you feel? And the farmer said, never better in my life. (laughs) Because the truth of the matter is, when people are hurting, sometimes the last person they actually trust to help is somebody that they ought to trust. For the last several weeks, we have been talking about what our one job is as Christians. And we have said in no uncertain terms... Our one job is we are in the witness business. So in Luke chapter 10, you have this interchange and this question that is asked. The question that comes is, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by saying, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second commandment is like unto it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then comes the question from a teacher in the law, who is the one who has posed this question anyway. And he asked what I call a bonehead question. Who is my neighbor? I want you to consider that for just a few minutes. I want you to think about who your neighbor actually is. Guys, it's Valentine's Day. Jake's talked about it. Matt and Jennifer talked about it in the communion meditation. In fact, in just a few minutes, as soon as this assembly ends over in our gym, we're having our Valentine's Day banquet. We're gonna honor our senior adults, our young adults, our teens are gonna serve in that moment. It's going to be a gorgeous, wonderful event. This is, this is a big day. So I want to tell you guys, if, 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 you, um, if you want to make Valentine's Day work for you, don't have a conversation with your wife that goes something like this. Honey, I know you want me to tell you that I love you. How many times a day do I have to tell you that? in order for you to feel loved i want to say to you man if you if you ask that question valentines day for you is going to be a fail it's not going to in fact you might as well just just say 2016 is not going to work well for you it's it's a bad start to the year the trouble is We ask some crazy questions sometimes, but I want you to understand why this one was posed. He's not really interested in Jesus talking about neighbor in the way that Jesus is going to talk about neighbor. What he's interested in is really looking at how much and who is it that i have to that i have to make my neighbor how who is it i have to serve and how much do i have to actually serve them in order for everything to work i want to come back to a term i introduced a few weeks back it's the term gracism because this man in my opinion is a gracist Gracism says, I deserve to be with the Father, and you don't. Gracism is not about the color of your skin. It's about the color of your sin. So I want you to think about that. And I want you to hold on to that. And I want to show you how Jesus responds to this question, who's my neighbor? Take a look at this.
1: Let me tell you a story. There was a time when an expert in the Old Testament stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That is correct, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with this story. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of (coughs) robbers. They beat him, stripped him of his clothes, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. He saw the man and passed by on the other side. So to a Levite came to where the man was, saw him, and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. He, He put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise.
0: He loves the intrinsic drama of this story. But I also think most people miss the point. This is a dark story. I want you to understand that. I think we hear it so often and we've heard it talked about particularly in children's classes. And we've used it for so many different illustrations that we forget this is not an easy story. And I want you to think about that for just a second Because a Sunday school teacher can tell it one way or a Sunday school teacher can tell it the way that it really probably was. This man was beaten to the inch of his life. You couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. And so when you look at the story that way and you see the darkness of it, the difficulty of it then it has kind of a different light. It doesn't have that saccharine quality to it anymore. It's not a saccharine story. It's a story that is supposed to make a very powerful point. And so as you look at that, and as one Sunday school teacher did with her class, she said, what would you do if you ran across somebody like this? And a little girl said... I think I'd throw up. And you understand that because if you've ever run across a scene where you see this kind of difficulty, kind of like the farmer on the road, and you see all this carnage there, what do you do? It affects you, it moves you. And so think about the story. The first guy that walks up is a priest. He is in the vocational religion business. He ought to know exactly what it is that that should be done and how it should be done. But he comes across and he sees this man. He doesn't reach down. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't do anything. In fact, if I were picturing the scene, he comes to him, he sees him. And he starts backing away. In fact, he backs away to the point that he goes to the other side of the road. And I would say, I want to make a couple of points about the two guys that show up first. Here's the first point. A bad neighbor is the one who has to go out of his way to do the right thing. I want you to think about the people that God has placed in your life. I want you to think about who it is that you engage with and how do you engage with them. Is life so complicated and is life so busy that a lot of times what you end up doing is instead of fully engaging with them, you just kind of walk around it. And go to the other side. Because we have people in our life that's in our family. We have people in our life that's in our workplace. We have people in our life that are in the neighborhoods that we live in. We have people in our life that are in extended friendship groups. We have people in our life that show up in unexpected times. And in unexpected places. What kind of engagement... Do we have with them? What kind of neighbor are we with them? Or is life so busy, life so scheduled, life so complicated, or maybe life so closed that we don't have space to open our life up to others' God places in our pathway? And so, there's another guy who comes on the scene. This guy also is in the professional religion building business. He's a Levite. Now, you know the Levites were of the priestly tribe. And with both of these folks, there may be real reasons they didn't want to touch this man because of purification laws. I mean, that is at least a possibility and could be a reason. Now, it's a reason Jesus discounts throughout his ministry. Because he ignores purification laws and ministers to those to whom he comes in contact with in a very, very authentic way. But I want you to think about that. It is a reasonable assumption when the Levite comes across this man And he sees him and he's beaten and he's bruised and he doesn't want to turn him over because maybe it's a dead body. Then he's not clean for the next seven days. And he does exactly the same thing. He walks around and he goes to the other side. So with both of these men, here's a second thing that I think is kind of characteristic of both of them. Maybe they are people that think God is more interested in their religious duties than in loving their neighbor. Here's my question Are we? Are we more interested in coming to church than being the church? Has church become that place, that event, that is somewhat sterile, and yet it's a place where we gather, we worship, there is goodness that comes out of that moment. But are we more interested in the gathering than we are the disbursement? In going into the world, making a kingdom difference, doing kingdom things, finding People who are bruised, battered, beaten. But they're our neighbors. They are the folks with whom we are supposed to engage. I want you to look at the comparison between the priest, the Levite, and how Jesus saw people. Matthew 9, verses 35 through 36. So hold your place in in Luke chapter 10. And if you will flip over there. Matthew 9 beginning in verse 35. Jesus went through the towns and villages. Teaching in their synagogues. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease. And every sickness. I want you to pay close attention to verse 36. When he saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. See, I want to take those synonyms of harassed and helpless and also apply bruised and beaten. Because not everybody is laying by the side of the road. Not everybody is beaten up in a physical sense. But let me tell you something. Every week, every day of every week, I come across someone in my life that's harassed, helpless, bruised, and beaten up by life. And they're looking for hope. They're looking for somebody just sometimes to take the time to disengage from the need to get to the next agenda item. Or to disengage from the need to get to the next thing on my schedule. Because after all, my busyness gives me my significance. And to sit back. And just listen to see what's really going on. Lenses of compassion. See, there is one way to see, and then there's another way to see. Compassion is something that is close to the heart of God. If you don't believe it, think about the prophets. I want you to remember the story of Jonah. You remember Jonah, he's got an assignment. God comes to him and says, okay, look, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to preach to Nineveh. I need you to tell them, unless they repent, they're going to be destroyed, right? So you have this thing that happens. Jonah decides, nope, not going to Nineveh. In fact, I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to head to Tarshish, and I'm going to get as far away from Nineveh as I can. And you know how the story happens for Jonah because the, great, the there's this storm, the great fish comes up, all the things that happen. Jonah spends three days inside. He has his encounter with God. He decides, you know what, I think I'll follow what God has to say. And he goes on to Nineveh. And God relents. Because after all, God is a God of grace. And God is a God of grace. Of compassion. And Jonah is irritated. See in my opinion. Jonah's a racist. What happens for me. Shouldn't happen for you. I also believe that Jonah's a racist. Because there is no way in the world. That he wants God to save the Assyrian people. Who have created so much drama for the Israelite nation. You got all that stuff. That's going on on. Look at what he says in verse two, Jonah chapter four, verse two. He says he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents. From sending calamity. Jonah had no desire for this people to be saved. His desire was for them to be destroyed. Completely destroyed. And so I want to say to us again. Unless our compassion is greater than our comfort... It was uncomfortable for Jonah to go to Nineveh. He did not want to do it. And God had to convince him it's something you need to go do. But unless our compassion is greater than our comfort, we will never make the kind of kingdom impact that God has for us to make. And so here's the third character in the story. It's this unusual Person, a Samaritan. See, here's the real deal. Good Samaritan to the Jews would have been the greatest oxymoron in all the world. How could anyone from Samaria be good? How could there be anything good about them? Why should we do anything, pay attention in any way to this person who is there, but this Samaritan has something the priest and the Levite didn't have. They saw the man, injured, bleeding, beaten, and they had and he had compassion on him once he saw him. There is a root word. The Greek root word for compassion is the word "splatna." And I said it that way because it's a guttural word. It's, it, it's something that means it comes from the gut. Turn to your neighbor without spitting on them and go, splachna. There's your Greek lesson for the day, right? So I'm, but you you can't even say it without it, without it, it It's got to come from within inside of you. and when you see someone who is broken, battered, and beaten. That's not a casual event. When we run into people in our life who are struggling, going through things, life is not easy for them. It's not a casual event. There's something there. It it should move us from deep within. See, I don't think this story Is about the good Samaritan. In a lot of ways. I think this story is about the the guys that didn't help. That decided. That their agenda. Was more important. And so you got this plot twist. That happens. This Samaritan who does this thing. That nobody expects. And he takes care of. Of the man. And I think the reason Jesus tells the story in the way that he does is he wanted the man who asked the question, Who's my neighbor? to understand that the second part of the great commandment. To love your, to love your neighbor as you love yourself is just is, it's intrinsically tied in to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. You can't divide the two. They are intricately locked together and I don't get to choose who my neighbor is. I have to see. Everyone that I come in contact with as my neighbor. And so I think what Jesus is saying, it's possible. Samaritans didn't have great theology. It's possible for someone to have bad theology and be a better neighbor than you and I. Who are folks that are in the kingdom. Isn't it interesting That in this world that we see developing right now, nonprofits are, as far as involvement in nonprofits, you see a lot of, I mean, that's pretty stagnant. It really hasn't changed a lot. But you see a lot of brand new startup nonprofits that are being started by millennials. Because the millennials believe that they want to be involved in things that make a difference in the world and they have watched the systems that have been in place in the past, realize those things haven't worked, and so they've desto- decided to start their own thing and do their own thing because they're willing to make a difference like that. They're willing to engage the world and do in the world the thing the church was always supposed to be. There's a bumper sticker I want to put up for you that I, I, I found because it was kind of interesting God, protect me from your followers. Isn't that an interesting take on us? So you got to take that as, hey, they're talking about me. Why do we, why would the world sit there and say they need to be protected from the church? Maybe it's because of the way the church has actually engaged the world. Maybe it's not been with a heart of compassion, but a heart that looks a lot more like judgment. I want to show you how the story ends. Look at Luke 10 again, beginning in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. And I would like to say to us as a church and to us as individuals, being a good neighbor is really about Opening your eyes to the simple things that you can do to help somebody who happens to be in need. You don't have to solve every problem, but there are people that God places in our lives. That we are supposed to do something with. We don't get the option of taking the step back. And walking around on the other side. That's not who we are called to be. That's why the bumper sticker exists. We preach sermons like this. And people go. Okay, I guess I'm going to have to go serve in the slums of Nairobi in order to make a kingdom difference. And I want to say that's not what I'm saying at all. If God is calling you to go serve in the slums of Nairobi, go. We will encourage you, pray for you, might even help you. Go do that. But I think the real deal is the Samaritan didn't give up his life, he didn't give up his life savings. If you look at two denarii, it's probably two weeks worth of pay. It was significant, but it wasn't the kid's college fund and it wasn't everything that he had amassed in his life. His life did not completely stop because he encountered the man. But he did what he could do and he did the right thing by the person He came in contact with. So I want to look at three things I think Jesus tells in the story. First, it made the neighbor an irrelevant stranger of no important standing. We don't know anything about the man. We don't know much except he's been beaten. That's it. We just have to respond to that. Second, it showed up the insensitivity of people who should have been the most sensitive As Jesus told this story, trust me, there were priests and Levites in that crowd listening to what Jesus was saying. And so there is this indictment that basically says, you have to put yourself in the story. Would you have done anything different than they did? Or would you just have gone and done what they did? But here's the third one. It forced the expert in the law to have to conclude by his own admission that the hated Samaritan was the one with the example to be followed. Jesus' concluding statement, Go and do likewise. I wonder what the heart response that was met with. Because if I've got to go be like that Samaritan, there were some who would say, not on your life. Not on your life. So I want to challenge us to ask a different question. I told you, I thought the question, who's my neighbor, is a bonehead question. I think we need to start asking the question, won't you be my neighbor? Trust me, Mr. Rogers stole that from Jesus. And it makes us willing and open to look at things in a very different way. It allows us to be available. Here's the thing I think that happens. We get so busy with our life, thinking that we are doing important things. And sometimes those things are religious things. I almost put up a slide that said, quit going to Bible studies and start engaging the world. Because we will study ourselves to death. But we'll sit back and let other people suffer while we study. Is study unimportant? Absolutely not. Is it as important to get ourselves involved in the world to go and be the church dispersed from this place, used by God, filled with his Holy Spirit, and be the kind of people that God can use in real and tangible ways? To make a difference, a real difference in what happens. I honestly believe the greatest hindrance to the mission of Jesus is the busyness of his agents. We get so caught up in our own stuff, and we convince ourselves it's so important. Trust me, that happens to me on a regular basis. I live by a list. I live by a calendar. And I've had to get good with praying, God, change my calendar. Change my list. Let me see who you're calling me to see. Let me do what you're calling me to do. George Bernard Shaw stated, The worst sin we can commit toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them. So I want to go back to mission and vision as we close this sermon. We've spent a lot of time here with vision, because it's about the great, it's a great commandment. Love God, love each other, and love our world. But the mission to call all people To be fully devoted followers of Christ is something I don't want us to miss. Last week, we talked about worship. And the week before, we talked about community. And we talked about how sometimes we've gotten so consumed with the form that we have forgotten the heart. Hear me say, I don't think form is unimportant. But I think heart... And the heart of the gospel is the thing. Trust me, I don't think people are necessarily drawn to us by our forms. But they are drawn when they see us do kingdom things. They are, they are, they are drawn when they see us move in kingdom ways. And so I found this quote from Roman Emperor Hadrian, 1st century. I want you to see how, quote-unquote, pagans saw this first century church. Look at these words. See how they love one another. They never fail to help the widows. They save the orphans from those that will hurt them. If they have something, they freely give to those who have nothing If they see a stranger, they take him home as if he were a brother. And I ask you, aren't you moved by that? Aren't you moved when you see the church that way? Where the church is not interested in what happens as it gathers near as much as what happens as it disperses. That it goes into the world. That, that we use the things that God has given us, the resources that are at our disposal, the things that we have to make a kingdom difference in the world. We don't need to talk about coming to church. We need to talk about Being the church. Our mission comes from the great commission. That we're to go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our vision comes from that great commandment. We have a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment. That is who we are called to be. In the words of Stephen Curtis Chapman, are we willing to forsake all for the sake of the call? So this morning, if you have never taken that step, If you have never decided that Jesus needs to be your Savior, Jake and I will be down front. We'll be glad to visit with you. Our elder couples will be around the room. They would be glad to visit with you. But as time for prayer happens, and I hope you engage with prayer time. I hope you go to these men and women and let them pray for you, let them bless you. This room is full of needs, full of difficulties, full of life circumstances. There are people in this room that are harassed, helpless, broken, and bleeding because that's what life does. So allow yourself to admit it and allow God to move in those moments. Whatever your need, come as we stand and sing.